0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
2: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show... Daryl McLeod, he's a Cree from the Treaty 8 Territory in Northern Alberta, and he's here to talk about a new book and also the fact that he is a finalist uh, in the nomination of the Hillary Weston Writers Trust Prize for Nonfiction, and that's going to be announced uh, later in November, I believe it's November 3rd, but it's a pleasure to have him uh, on the show to talk about the uh, second part of a memoir that he's put together. And, uh, Daryl, welcome to the show, first of all, uh, Sego, and welcome. Thank you, Tanse. It's great to join you, David. And you're going to have to help me because I don't want to mispronounce the, the way you would say this word, the title of your, your new book. Right, it's Piagao thank you so much because I would not have said that <laughs> Right. so thank you so much for that now um, as I said this is the the second book in, in a, a memoir series that you've got put together and you're going to have to help me again with the first book so why don't you tell me the name of the first book? Well the first book is, is almost like it looks it's Mama Scotch aha uh-huh. yes now I know I would have said that so uh, you know one out of two for <laughs> me <laughs> Right. And, and it's a coming of age story that Mama Squatch and um, which That, of course, won the Governor General's Literary Award for nonfiction. So congratulations. Right, in 2018. Yeah, congratulations to you on that. Thank you. And Not to mention, uh, it was nominated in numerous other awards as well for that, for the RBC Taylor Prize, the George Riga Award for Social Awareness, and the list goes on. So uh, congratulations for your success in this area.
0: Thank you so much David it was it's been quite a wave to ride and now there's a there was this new one last week with uh, as you mentioned the Hillary Weston uh, Writers
2: Trust prize. Yeah, congratulations to you on that. So now as I said this is a follow up to Mama Scotch. So can you tell us a little bit about I know that I know the first book was sort of your early years and uh, and it tells the, the history of your your family and your 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 nation I guess to some degree.
0: Right. Initially, the, the two books, Mama Scotch, A Cree Coming of Age, and Pia Gao Reclaiming Cree Dignity, were one book. Oh. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I had this huge manuscript mm. of about 540 pages, and my early mentor, her name was Betsy Warland, an amazing author herself and an expert on the craft, um, handed me over to a good friend of hers. Um, who all, Who became my subsequent mentor. Her name is Shayna Lambert, and she's an expert novelist and a fiction writer, and a real master of the craft of writing the short story. And when she reviewed the manuscript, the, the whole manuscript, um, she felt that it was just too long and, and too much to have. There were something mm. like 26 short stories, both books mm are Structured as linked short stories, right? And there was just too much. And she felt that you know, the ideal number of stories for one collection of short stories is about 13 or 14, 14 at the most. Mm. And I don't know what that's based on, but um, you know, she studied with uh, geniuses like Alice Munro mm. and uh, others and been doing this for a long time. So I trusted her mm-hmm. with that, and um, so. It wasn't really arbitrary where we where where we uh, made the break between the two books. Mm. It seemed to there seemed to be a natural place to end Mama Scotch with um, uh, an important death in the family and I don't want to give away too much mm-hmm. but um, so you know Mama Scotch goes through yes my my it actually predates my childhood. Uh, there's one story just as, as there is in Gao that um, predates my birth and it's the story uh entitled hail mary full of grace Mm. about my mother and aunts and great aunts experience in the residential school saint bernard's indian residential school in northern alberta and it's the dramatic story of their breakout Mm. and how they escaped and uh, never went back Mm -hmm. fortunately I felt it was really important to include that story, and uh, I did a bit of research to see if that was legitimate in my memoir. And of course, you know it is because my ancestor's experience is my experience, and mm-hmm. I carry their their experiences, good and bad, mm-hmm. uh, in my genes, in sure. my genetic code. And yep. um, so, yeah, the the story predates my birth, and then it's uh, another story in uh, called Machimantui is about happens when i was a baby and then it goes right up until i was um about 30 years old and uh, had a teaching career and was living teaching french immersion on the west side of vancouver and then Gal picks up from there uh, uh, at the time of my life where i became a school principal i went basically overnight from teaching affluent kids wonderful affluent kids, I should say, um, on the west side of Vancouver to working on an impoverished Indian reserve uh, in northern BC, 80 kilometres up a logging road from the closest town, which mm. was Fort St. James. Mm. So that's where the story picks up. But I should say that Piago also has a chapter of historical nonfiction. It talks about the negotiation of Treaty 8. Mm. Um, and... Um, that's the chapter in the first chapter of the book entitled Mioskamin. And um, my great grandfather at the time of the negotiation of Treaty 8 would have been a teenager. And uh, nobody is sure of his exact birth date because there were no birth certificates Mm. in the late 1800s. But he would have been around, you know, 16 or 17 at the time Treaty Treaty 8 was negotiated. Mm. And I felt it was important to start there because that's when our world with with Piagau, Mm -hmm. Because that's where our world was really turned upside down. Mm. Saying our world, I mean, my immediate family and the world of my extended family.
2: Yes. Um, Now, you just mentioned uh, the negotiations of Treaty 8, and and that's interesting because I understand that uh, prior to your getting into writing, uh, you uh, were a chief negotiator for land claims.
0: I was indeed, yeah, here on Vancouver Island, and then I was chief negotiator of um, of self-government negotiations with the Satu Dene people uh, in the Northwest Territories.
2: I always look for things in... In, in people that I see as links, you know, that, that sort of uh, draw right. a line to see where they're going, how, where they came from, and how they get to where they are. And, and, you know, so I see now, you know, of course, that you have this, this degree in French literature as well. So I'm wondering, French literature, <laughs> what's the connection there? You're, uh, uh, you're a teacher. Um, so you, you, did you always have a, uh, an interest in literature?
0: I did. I mean, I remember remember enjoying reading from the to- earliest days, from mm. grade one up, um, and I remember um, begging the librarian, the school librarian, when I was in grade four to let me take books home over the Christmas holidays, and she did. Mm. Um, so, yes, and, and there are links. I mean, in the treaty negotiation process, I wouldn't say there was a natural link right. when I was working in that field to writing my memoir although I did know that I would write about it at some point mm. and I'm going to write about it more than I did mm. I just right. wrote a, about a couple of aspects of it right. in my book the uh, an apology that the federal government did mm-hmm. to the new channel mm. tribes uh, on the west coast of Vancouver Island here well before they did the national apology in mm. in parliament mm. and it was it was an amazing process to work through and so mm. I write about that process of leading, leading, I actually led the process of getting mm. to a point of having a deputy minister come out and read this apology to the New channels people. Mm. Uh, I knew I would write about that someday. I had to. Mm. And mm. I knew I would write about the translation, uh, translation of the NISCA final agreement, because it's something that most Canadians wouldn't be aware of, that, right. you know, that Indigenous rights are really held hostage to um, another part, colonial part of Canada, the French, um, aspect of Canada where everything has to be translated, everything that's federal law has to be translated into French. So the NISCA final agreement was actually held hostage. Uh, this huge agreement that took actually 100 years to get to um, was held hostage for actually it turned out to be a couple of years uh, for it to be translated into full legal French where it's the the, the document in French um has equal law, legal force mm. and carries equal legal <laughs> weight to the english document most uh-huh. canadians don't they know about the bilingual nature yeah. of canada as a country but they don't know the implications so i knew i had to write about that right and then the connection with french literature is fascinating there are a couple of connections there um one is one of the earlier books i read uh was uh, jean jacques rousseau's les confessions Mm. confessions and mm-hmm. that uh his memoir is 10 volumes and 10 tomes they're not they're not like a couple <laughs> hundred pages each they're huge and i think i read two volumes of uh of les confessions in french and i was so intrigued uh for the era he was writing in mm-hmm. he was so candid and vivid in his descriptions and you know he talks about you know wanting to go to the city and i certainly identified that mm. from Wanting to go from a rural area to live in the city, and then mm-hmm. how he imagined uh, city walls and what what life would be like in the city, and mm-hmm. then getting to the city penniless and mm. having to beg for help, and then being—I'm um, not sure if it was fully realized, but partially at least—sexually. Um, uh, uh, exploited by a priest mm. Mm. you know this is in the late 1800s right but he writes about all that stuff and I remember reading the confession the confessions of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and thinking if I could do this someday if I could pull this off mm. that would just be amazing hmm. but um I didn't I you know I certainly won't write 10 I mean I, I'm <laughs> amazed what that I got one memoir done right let alone two and remember when I was writing the first one Uh, And I would tell people that I was writing a memoir, they'd say, well, you know, are you famous for something? Like, you know, were you a hockey player or a politician or a a billionaire? And I'd say, no, (laughs) none of those things. But people have told me that I have an interesting story to tell. And that's the second connection to the degree in French literature. I had Mm. two French professors who took me under their wing Mm. in my second year of French at UBC. Mm. Uh, Claire Lees and David Rogers. They were both professors, uh, a married couple. And for whatever reason, they, they really liked me and they became my mentors and invited me over to their house three or four times a week. And we had lovely French food and French red wine. <laughs> and we spoke French. They wouldn't <laughs> speak English to me. Huh? And after we'd shared a bit with each other about our personal lives, Uh, at one point, they were very dramatic. Um, They sat me down and said, you know, you have to write about, you have to write your story Mm. because it's a unique part of their term was Canadiana Mm. that only you can tell. Mm. And you have to do it. And um, so that combined with later, when I was a school principal, I was working with this wonderful elder, Catherine Bird, who um who's a, a carrier elder, and she came to teach the carrier or duck language in the school where I was principal, and we became really good friends. And after we had exchanged stories, her about her life raising 11 kids uh, on her own after her husband died and okay. hunting moose on yeah. her own and running a, a big uh, camp on her own and Having to bake firewood uh, for the winter all on her own. Mm. It was quite amazing. Anyway, after I shared some of her, the stories of my youth with her, she, she dramatically as well. And and Catherine was a very dramatic person. She wagged her big index finger at me like my mother used to <laughs> and said, Daryl, you have to write these stories down. They'll help people someday. Ah, and, right. Uh, so then I knew that with Clearly's and David and the. Mm. Um, influence of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Confession and all that, I I knew I had to write, so I started when I was a principal. But I thought I was going to write uh, short stories for children, Mm, and that's how it all started.
2: Fascinating! Thank you for that. It was a that's a great story to hear, and uh, I'm sure it may be encouraging for others to hear as well. Before we go any further, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Daryl McLeod, and we're speaking with him about uh, his, well, basically his two books uh, that that he has written, and he is uh, currently uh, up as a, uh, a finalist for the Hillary Weston Writers Trust Prize for nonfiction, for his uh, second book uh, memoir, which is Peagau. Uh, Peagau did I get that correct? that's very good excellent good for you thank you and it's the follow-up to his first book so this is the sequel to Mameskatch and uh, it's a Cree coming of age story the first book this uh, Pegao is the follow-up and uh, as I said you know going back to the first book again Mameskatch uh, was uh, won the Governor General's Award for nonfiction in 2018 so uh, it's these are books which you should pick up look at and also read and uh, uh, Daryl, where can people find these books if they are interested now that we've uh, stimulated their imagination and their interest?
0: Well, they're they're absolutely everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, friends send me pictures of um, uh, Pia Gao being prominently displayed in Indigo's chapter in downtown Ottawa, mm. uh, in Edmonton, in Prince George. So uh, the local bookstores mm-hmm. seem to all have have my books in stock. Correct. Uh, So, deal with your local booksellers Mm -hmm. all over the country. Um, Chapters Indigo has really picked up my books in a big way in the the last um, few months. Mm -hmm. And um, your libraries, I mean, if if you don't have access to a bookstore or um, for whatever reason you prefer to borrow from a library, um, I think all of the libraries in Canada... A lot of the I'm amazed with the rural libraries that have my books, and mm, um, mm. and if they don't have them, they seem to be very willing to bring them in quickly. So, mm. libraries, local bookstores, the big bookstores, and even Amazon is carrying uh, both of my books as well.
2: Are you aware of uh, any uh, schools, universities, other you know institutions that are using them as, as some kind of uh, reading literature for courses? Yes, I am.
0: Um, the first one that came to my attention actually was um, UBC. One of the professors, an assistant dean in the faculty of education said that um, she intended to introduce my books into their curriculum. Mm. Um, similarly, a friend uh, in in California, I think he's at UCLA, um, is using my book in his writing courses. Mm. It's been used by the University of Vermont in their translation program. Uh, They invited me to Bath to actually be a guest speaker Hmm. to the the group of the cohort of translators they were putting through a couple of years ago. Um, I know UBC carries my book, and I'm pretty sure other faculties besides the Faculty of Education are using it. Um, Uvic, their Mm. bookstore has my book. Mm -hmm. Um, I hoping there are other universities that will pick it pick mm. it up a couple of friends who are um, fairly senior up in the bureaucracy in the federal government um, are saying they're going to recommend it to um, schools of public administration mm. that Pia Gao, in particular they feel every school of public administration should should use that book because mm. of the experience I described working in the provincial government the federal government mm. and the Assembly of First Nations. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's 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 encouraging. And a, a dear friend of mine, Dr. Kathy Absalon, who teaches at um, the University of, uh, I think it's Wilfrid Laurier, unfortunately, mm. <laughs> but a University of right. uh, in Kitchener-Waterloo. Yep, and uh, she's used my book in her social work courses as well.
2: Nice. That's uh, very encouraging. It's nice to hear. Now, uh, as we've said off the top, these books are memoirs. They're they're uh, stories put together uh, from your history, from your family, uh, and some degree uh, from your nation of people. And um, I'm just wondering because they are truth, and because they are your personal uh, stories around your life, around your family. it isn't always easy to write these things, uh, and 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 again, uh, you write about both the good and the bad, and I'm wondering. You know, some people, especially when we look back, and we know about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and we have heard about the stories of people uh, being asked to come forward and share their histories about what happened to them uh, during, uh, you know, uh, uh, residential school experiences and things, which was very difficult for for a lot of people to relive that and to to uh, try to come to terms with that. Were there any demons you had to deal with in this process of of writing? how did you how did you come to terms with that if you did and coming through that now how looking back at it how do you feel about having put this together? Well it's
0: interesting that you use the word demon in in um Cree the word for that um or is Machimanto which means bad bad god. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um and it's a very powerful word in Cree and we were taught you know to be to be very careful how we use that word mm. and not to use it lightly. But I do use it in my books. And um, um, the the demon that has challenged me the most, I, I mean, I'm not prone to being suicidal, fortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm so very uh, happy and relieved right. that that hasn't been my case. Yes. But I have been visited by the the what I call the, the machimanto of suicide. Mm. Um, at different points in my life, and it's it's been a it's been an epidemic in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, three of my siblings committed suicide, mm-hmm. um, one of my uncles, and one of my nephews, and there, and a number of cousins. And suicide is very prominent, as you probably know, David, mm-hmm. in the indigenous community in oh, Canada. Yeah. And I'm s- saddened to hear that that's a similar situation in the United States. Mm-hmm. And even when I traveled in South America, I learned that sadly that. that suicide is quite prominent in in, in Indigenous youth Mm. in those countries as well. But in Canada, we certainly have an epidemic of it. It, uh, Indigenous youth are committing suicide at four times the rate of any other group in Canada, Mm -hmm. of other youth Mm -hmm. in Canada. And, um, you know, I'll give you a little anecdote just really quickly. I was in North Bay to speak at the University of Nipissing, and they um, took me to speak to a group of youth at Chippewa High School right in North Bay. Mm -hmm. And at one moment I was inspired because I've been reading so much about suicide, particularly in Northern Ontario, although it's all over Canada. Um, And so I was inspired to ask this group of youth, um, beautiful indigenous youth, Cree and and Anishinaabe, and I think there might've been some Innu there too. Mm. Um, But I asked them how many of them had been affected by the suicide? How many Mm -hmm. of them had somebody close to them in their immediate family commit suicide within the last few years and every one of them raised their hand mm. the yeah. the teacher present and the principal present were just floored they mm. they hadn't thought about that and hadn't right. realized that right. but the demon suicide you know I've come to conclusions and I write about that given all the dealings I've had with suicide both when I was working as a psychiatric worker in my youth as well as in my family mm. um, I've come to some, some conclusions about suicide and I think the The final stage of suicide um is really spiritual and it's spiritually driven mm. and um you know, recently learning about the uh, two hundred and fifty two hundred and fifteen um, unmarked graves mm. in Kamloops yeah. Indian residential school um I was in Puerto Verde at the time, and I didn't have a lot of support, so I have some close friends there, but um, I was floored by that news because mm. that's a place i had been. I know people from the community. I have very good friends from that community. Mm. Uh, I was just devastated by that news. And I have to say that, you know, a couple of days after getting that news, I I was really worried about myself and I asked for help mm. uh, because I, was, I felt vulnerable to suicide. Right. And um, there have only been a couple of points in my life where I felt that and that was one of them. Right. So it's a... It's, it's certainly a demon that I have to be constantly aware of,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that I have to be wise and, and clever in how I deal with it if it does appear.
2: Right. Jimmy uh, Gretch for, for sharing that. Um, now, you mentioned uh, Kamloops, and I'm wondering, ha- had you visited the Kamloops school at all, the re-po- residential school? Uh-huh.
0: Many times I worked in Salmon Arm, and I write about uh, there's this chapter in Pia Gao called Whiteout, mm. the, the title of Whiteout, mm. and um, Salmon Arm is just an hour away from Kamloops, mm. and so I was I did we did some work with the uh, with uh, different agencies that were based in the residential school that the First Nation uses it now as for offices, right, and um, so I was there for many meetings um both in the older part of the school Mm. and there's a newer part of the school um and i always um felt very strange when i was there i felt out of sorts uncomfortable this odd feeling that you can't really nail down about why you're so disturbed but i was really disturbed each and every time i went there Mm. and um You know, and the irony, and that's this would apply to many of the sites of former residential schools, you know, it's a beautiful setting. I've always loved the rolling hills and the kind of sand dunes around Kamloops and that beautiful river that flows right by the residential Mm -hmm. school. I've always loved that setting and Mm. thought it was idyllic, and I just think of the horror it's the same all over there's a school here on a small island um Cooper Island with um Penelica at First Nation there yes. there was this yes. huge residential school right on the shore of their island or of the beach of their island and you know just think of those those beautiful children being in that setting that is so tremendously beautiful but being tortured yeah. you know and being yeah. sad and being yeah. starved and You know, it's, it, it just is horrific.
2: Yeah, I, I appreciate everything you said there. Uh, we're we're out of time, and I'm so happy to have had this time with you to discuss uh, you, the two books that you've written, this, this uh, Mamaskatch as well, as your sequel, Pegao, Pe and uh, people can, as you said, find those at your local bookstores, and uh, I, I encourage people to pick them up and read them. Uh, these are, as you said, uh, they're memoirs, they're based in truth, and uh, you are... Uh, Congratulations once again for uh, receiving the Governor General's Award for your first first book. And now you are up for the Hilary Weston's Writer's Trust Prize for Nonfiction, which is going to be announced uh, in the first part of November of this year. So, uh, Daryl, congratulations once again. and, uh, And best of luck with all the future work that you're going to be bringing forward as well.
0: Well, thanks so much, David. The only thing I would point out to, and reg- I'm so incredibly grateful to the jury mm. of the Writers' Trust, uh, Hillary Weston Prize, and if you have a moment at some point, I would recommend, and I'd recommend this to everybody, to look at the jury's citation because
2: it's it's breathtaking. Great. Will do. Thank you for mentioning that as well. Daryl, uh, thanks again for taking the time to join us on your show, and enjoy the uh, rest of, well, your beautiful time out there on the West Coast. Thanks so much. All right, have a
0: great day. It's been an honor to speak with you. Likewise, take care. Hi hi, bye bye.
2: That's the voice of Daryl McLeod, and he is a Cree from Treaty Eight Territory in northern Alberta, now living on uh, Vancouver Island. But he is uh, nominated, as I mentioned, for the Hillary Weston Writers Trust Prize in nonfiction, that is going to be announced in November. And uh, that's for his book, uh, Payagao, and that's the sequel to Mamaskatch. And you can find those books in your local bookstore. Uh, Mamaskatch is a Cree coming-of-age story. It uh, won the Governor General's Award in 2018. And uh, Peagao, the sequel to that, as it continues on the story of his life. So uh, congratulations to him, and best of luck to him and don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element.
2: Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to have with me Lisa Kortuwig. She's the Associate Professor in the Faculty of Education at Lakehead University. We're also joined with Tisa Fiddler, and she's an Indigenous community partner and coordinator of Indigenous Education at Thunder Bay Catholic District School Board. And both Lisa and Tisa are the co-authors, along with Pauline Tennant, who is a manager at the Center for Human Rights Research at the University of Manitoba, on an article in The Conversation, which we're going to be talking about today. It is entitled, Reckoning with the Truths of Unmarked Graves of Indigenous Children, Education Systems Must Take action so it's a pleasure to have both uh Lisa and Tisa with us here today welcome ladies bonjour bonjour
1: Miigwech. Miigwech for having us.
2: It's it's our pleasure to have you on the show and talk about this article. I'm going to give you a little bit more of an introduction because I think it helps to fill out the background of this article. So Lisa Korterwig as I said is an associate professor at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay and of course that is on the traditional territory of the Fort William First Nation. They are the signatories of the 1850 Robinson Superior Treaty and uh, there Lisa works with both settler and indigenous students and teachers. Now her academic Work addresses settler colonialism and curriculum, indigenous cultural safety in classrooms, decolonization theories of education, and decolonial methods for critical praxis by settler teachers. Her community based work focuses on questions of how schools grapple and teachers engage with the social unjust realities of indigenous youth who daily contend with anti-indigenous racism and colonial in- inequities in education. Now working with Tisa Fiddler, she collaborates on professional development and research projects to cultivate a settler edu- educator accountability to the TRC's calls to action while promoting service to families, communities guided by elders and knowledge keepers. And I think that's really important. And I'm very glad that you knew to put that in there because uh, being guided by elders is is a crucial step that we have to all keep in mind. And I think especially for uh, moving forward in this way, um, as your article starts to address about the idea and the importance of making sure that First Nation people are at the center of this and that the teachers don't find themselves being put in a position where they are the, uh, the sole person. And I guess the center person uh, for students to be looking to uh, as we find our way through uh, talking about this, as your article is entitled reckoning with the truths of unmarked graves of indigenous children and education systems must take action. Now, you also focus heavily on the education system because that is where you're saying right now there is this uh, gap because teachers, non-indigenous teachers being put in the center of this to teach kids about it, are finding themselves uh, very much, I guess, at a, a very in an awkward position. I guess that's what you might say. Is that fair to say, uh, Lisa?
3: Yes, very well put. This is the crux of the matter. We have non-Indigenous settler teachers who do want to do the right thing, most of them. However, they haven't received the guidance. They haven't received the coordination from their school leaders, from their school districts, and most importantly, from the Ministry of Education. Mm -hmm. But this is something we can't shy away from. This is something that we need to come together as a profession and really grapple Mm. with what happened and what's still going on in classrooms and schools. Mm. What are those structural inequities, those injustices that continue to be reproduced in school systems right now?
2: Now, if we if we go back a year and yeah. look at this, um, the idea of, of wanting to do this. We have always known, at least a great people, a number of people have known, that the the, the books, the textbooks that are being taught and being handed out and, and being given to children uh, are very um, inaccurate in terms of the, uh, the indigenous uh, society and what they have given to Canada. And uh, I believe there's I don't know if there's anything in there on on uh, the residential school system. So with the the now uh, knowledge that we have come to now realize about and and the, with these unmarked graves that are now uh, being discovered across at, at other residential schools across the country, and we, I'm sure we're going to be seeing more of that. Um, it really launched the country into a. Uh, okay, this is a reality. And I guess for the non-Indigenous, for majority of the non-Indigenous people who uh, maybe you know weren't really thinking heavily about this, that really hit them over the head to say, okay, this is serious, this is real. Um, why was I denied this information? Why was I not told about this? They're asking a lot of questions. And now, as you say, it comes to the students, uh, the teachers... To, have, to want this knowledge. But it, it's a relatively short period of time, though, isn't it? Uh, especially for a, a large system like an education system to grapple with. Now, they've, of course, had years to, to want to, to change things and, and update information. But... It hasn't happened, and now it seems that they're grappling. But it sounds like what you're saying is that the teachers are not so far getting any information from uh, from the ministry or anywhere else to say, yes, we're updating this, yes, we're working on it, yes, we're, we're trying to get caught up on this as fast as we can.
3: I would say definitely they're not getting enough direction. Mm-hmm. There are some Efforts happening system-wide, and I'll let Tisa talk to that because she was right on the curriculum review and development of social studies grades one to three. Mm. However, I do want to remind the audience that the Ministry of Education in Ontario had revised the whole social studies curriculum during the previous government, that is the WIN, Liberal Government, And it was basically stopped in its tracks once we had a new government takeover. So curriculum revision is a constant political process, but I'm really glad that you mentioned, David, how textbooks do not serve teachers or students well because they take so slow to be updated. Mm. At the same time, we live in this incredible Internet age. Yes. All that information is available. Yeah. It's not as though teachers can't find the information. Correct. More importantly, it's the direction from all of those three big organizational components, the ministry of education, the school districts, as well as teacher federations. They all need to come together and make this a priority mm. so that teachers feel supported. Now I'll stop there. Tisa, sure. do you yeah. want to add?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Thanks. (laughs) Very thoughtful questions, David. Um, uh, You know, and thinking back to my experience with, um, with the ministry. um, So I, I was, um, you know, privileged to have been a part of the the writing teams for the, um, the uh, curriculum revisions that happened in social studies, grade four to six, uh, grade seven and eight history and grade 10 history. Um, five years ago
3: Hmm.
1: um and um so you know i was able to see it through from the review to the revisions to the provincial launch and um and then i was um supposed to have been part of the phase two of the revisions Mm -hmm. um the revisions were called for or uh, were um the revisions were happening in response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. And um, and it was on the Friday. It was uh, the Friday, We uh, the Monday, um, one of the first Mondays in July, we were supposed to have been in Toronto um, to begin that writing. And it was Friday at around four o'clock that we all got an email Um from uh, a government that had been newly elected um that there was not going to be any revisions that there was a pause yes and uh so it's been two years um since that time and um and i again put my name forward to be part of um the revisions for the grades one to three now it is um there is, it is some revision that is happening. It is not to the extent that was supposed to have happened in um, um, uh, two years ago, um, we were supposed to have looked at a broader range of secondary credits or secondary subject areas. Um, This one was just focused on grades one to three social studies. So, you know, in in thinking about the um, you know, the word, the the revisions that have been happening—it's—it's it, it's super important. It's so important that they not be done so haphazardly. You know, um, that we can't make these decisions on the fly. Um, it has to be done very thoughtfully, and um, and and our learnings from the first set of revisions is that um, the resources have to be put in place in mm. order to support the teachers' implementation of the new curriculum. We can't just say you know oh you know you have to talk about colonization in grade five now without giving them, any resource to be able to talk about colonization. That was really important to us with that mm-hmm. first set of revisions was that we start to introduce those really big ideas around colonization and racism mm-hmm. and where it fit. And that was in grade five. And, um, it, and, and our, our leaders, you know, our, our provincial leaders, our ministry leaders, they need to acknowledge that racism exists in our school system. In our education system, they need to acknowledge that. You know, a great example is the de-streaming of the grade nine mathematics. Um, just this uh, this spring, it was announced, and we were expecting all the math educators to um, to to teach this new curriculum that they didn't even have in their hands until um, you know a, a couple about a week before the summer break. And and the one of the main reasons in the in the forward or the preamble to the curriculum was that it, it, the the de streaming was to address systemic racism, but there was some pushback from certain people in the province that um, the Ministry of Education should not be. Um, admitting that there is systemic racism that black and indigenous students are being failed by the current education system and and primarily because of the way that our education system operates and the curriculum that exists and so that those pieces from the actual curriculum document were um, were taken out hmm. all curriculum documents are virtual now and so one day there was this big statement and admission that, Curriculum is racist, and then somebody didn't like it, and so the next day it was it was gone.
2: Well, the, the one thing uh, that you've both mentioned about is this digital world that we now live in, and so things can be somewhat changed rapidly, as you just mentioned, um, and. That would be also with textbooks. So even though uh, hardcover uh, material is takes a lot longer to get out into the hands of, of students, online material is there and online information can be updated and be shared digitally and made available to students. But I, I'd like to come back to the to the, what your article talks about and that is uh, to a great degree around what teachers are being left to try to do. And there's many things that that we could talk about there. One is, is the idea about what is the responsibility of the teacher? What is the responsibility of even uh, a, a school and how much work a school can do towards uh, helping each other um, and, and addressing these things in, in, in classroom or in a school area or a school district? I'm not even sure what... Uh, control that an area has. I mean, are, are they? Can a school or a district get together to start to address these things so that teachers don't feel left alone as much as you're you're indicating in your article? So that they can start to share this information or try to come up with something on their own, or is that again uh, taboo in terms of the way the structure is set out? They have to follow whatever they are given and whatever they are told through the ministry and through the other educational systems that are out there. Which one of you would like to address that?
3: So these are excellent questions, David. And so I will try to address what I think you're asking about where are the different levels mm. of accountability sure. as well as the different levels, let's say, of leadership mm. or or outreach. And so what I would say is, yes, the digital means of accessing information is available to those individual teachers, though it does take time and effort, and they have to know where to find the accurate information. Mm-hmm. And they also have to be really aware of Indigenous first-person, Indigenous vetted accounts, mm. so that they are not just doing some quick search yep. and at surface level, assuming that this is indigenous accurate information. Right. However, that's just one component. That's the content. And mm-hmm. I don't want to underestimate it. It is critically important. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're now in this era of truth and reconciliation, which we have been from mm-hmm. since 2015, and yeah. that is six years ago. I do wish there was a regular audit done of all levels of education, as well as health care, as well as justice, on how the calls to action are being implemented. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be great if we had an auditor general report mm-hmm. on a regular basis on the calls to action? Mm-hmm. But where I'm going with this is we are living in an era of absolute tragedy. Of understanding the genocidal atrocities that occurred in the name of education. Mm. And we as educators have inherited those legacies, mm. those colonial shameful legacies. And we really need to take into account how are we still reproducing. Mm-hmm a system that does not work hard for Indigenous student success. Right. We still have so much under-resourcing for Indigenous student education, particularly on reserve or in those um, federal contexts. Mm -hmm. And we still have Indigenous students in provincial or public school systems not meeting the same graduation rates as their non-Indigenous peers. They still do not feel welcomed. They still do not feel belonging in their schools. They still do not feel pride. Hmm. And I'm really asking that there be greater gatherings and conversations by professional educators on what we need to sit with, what we need to hear from Indigenous community on what's not working, or worse yet, as we saw with the Joyce Eshaquan mm. inquiry, are we still harming Indigenous students and their families? Right. And that's why we need greater Indigenous cultural safety. But I'll just pause there for a minute and just <clears throat> emphasize A teacher's role is more than dispensing accurate content. More importantly, it's engaging and having genuine relationships with their students for healthy relationships and for their students to thrive and become the best that they can be and to meet the needs of their families and their communities in developing these healthy, wonderful human beings. So it's more than just giving the accurate content. It's the type of pedagogy, the type of engagement, the type of investment by the whole school system into Indigenous children's families and communities. I'll pause there.
2: Yeah, that's a tall order. Uh, it's, a, it's a tall order for uh, teachers to take on, so hats off to them uh, for you know, stepping into the realm of education and, uh, and taking on this role. However, it does speak to that gap that you're also talking about because um, it, it leaves them now in a position without the information to do so. And uh, if they are true to their calling and what they are, want to do, and they would certainly want to make sure that that information, that they, they are getting that information out there in an accurate format. Mm-hmm. And that relationship, there's so many other things we could talk about. I know, uh, uh, Tisa, you're going to jump in and, and and talk further on this, but I, I just want yeah. to say that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, uh, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And it's a pleasure to have on the show with me uh, Lisa Kortowick and also Tisa Fiddler, and they are both here to talk about an article that they co-authored along with uh, Pauline Tennant. Uh, uh, It is called Reckoning with the Truths of Unmarked Graves of Indigenous Children, Education Systems Must Take Action. And you can find that in The Conversation. If you go online to theconversation.ca, you can find this article and you can uh, read all about it there. So, uh, Atisa, thank you. And uh, you were going to continue on with... Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: I wanted just to add to that. So I, um, you know, I, I... I'm able to work with teachers right on the front line. Mm -hmm. I I teach at the faculty as well, but, but I also get to work alongside teachers who are doing this heavy lifting Mm -hmm. in the classroom. And, and it is just, um, it, it gives me so much hope to see teachers who are, who, who are, um, taking on this work. They are championing this work, um, and taking those risks those very you know courageous mm-hmm. uh risks um to to indigenize their their course content to make sure that um that uh, history is taught in in an appropriate way um or that that indigenous knowledge is incorporated into their subject area you know i'm thinking of uh, Great. And, and that it doesn't have to be in courses that are specific to Native studies, mm, the old right. term, right? Or mm-hmm. the Indigenous studies. Um, so I'm thinking of a grade 10 history teacher that I work with. Um, and uh, I, I learned so much from her and she's taken that grade 10 history curriculum and, and really challenged herself to look beyond the parameters of the curriculum. Um, but she was also able to, to take some time to um, To push her awareness of that curriculum um, through some special funding that she got through a program that was offered through the Ministry of Education mm. called the uh, Teacher Leadership and Learning Program or project. You know, all the there there were op- there used to be opportunities for teachers to apply for grants so that they could um, de- develop their knowledge and understanding. Um, Those opportunities have not been been um, have not existed for the last couple of years. Um, All all of those opportunities were gone with with the change in in government. And so we haven't seen um, it much growth in the area of social justice education, because a lot of those grant opportunities teachers used to develop their social justice, understanding and awareness and um, teacher pedagogy and practice. So, but this teacher was able to, this history teacher, going back to her, you know, took that history curriculum, which is Canadian history, which has very, you know, it, it had originally very little um, Indigenous content um, or, or content that reflected accurate Indigenous histories in in what is now Canada Um she she was indigenizing that content even before the the revised curriculum came out. Where the final culminating project, which is not prescribed in the curriculum, you know, it's kind of left open to to teachers um, to create a culminating assessment. Uh, she had she had um, her students identify indigenous change makers in this country. Hmm. In, in the past, and they did the, uh, they did sort of um, like a human library where their students presented on who they felt was their change maker. Each student uh, researched and created, um, you know, a, a presentation on their um, on who they felt was an indigenous change maker and influ- influential indigenous person, and they presented to um, members of the school community. It was a it was a walk library. Mm. So there are teachers that are championing this work, absolutely. But teachers need to be yes given permission to do this, and by get being given permission to do this work, it's to for for leadership, for the ministry, for the government to say that this work is important, and um, here are the resources that you you know you need to be able to do this work, um, and that is through the you know adequate funding. Again, bringing back those TLLPs, Mm. um, the professional learning communities. We had collaborative inquiry work, which allowed for um, a budget to release teachers from their classroom duties and get a supply teacher to Mm. bring together those teachers so we can do some intensive learning together Mm. and really unpack the curriculum into resources. So, yes, we might bring new curriculum, we might get new resources, but is is there enough, um, you know, funding in place to adequately prepare teachers to be able to implement this? And so, yes, we do have teachers that are individually doing this work. But, um, you know, like it just with um, the article that we wrote, it, it really is, it, it has to be collective effort. It has to be from, from the leadership of the education system um, that will start shifting that, that discourse mm. of what education is now.
2: Mm. the other thing I, w- I want to mention in light of, of everything we're talking about and it certainly is in no way meant to take away any of the importance of what we're talking about because it's all super important and it, it all needs to get out there we are, are also dealing with COVID so teachers already have their hands full and I know this from first-hand experience from my own kids in a, a high school there is so much that teachers are dealing with right now
1: Sure. I'll, I'll speak to that. Um, you know, and it, it is absolutely, at uh, the forefront of, of our thoughts. Um, I work in, I guess some people call it student achievement or really? the, the curriculum department. So, um, you know, I support the work of teachers who are in the classroom on a day to day and the the forefront of all of my thinking is about the teacher wellbeing. Mm. Um, you know, it is, um, It is, uh, you know, a critical time for everybody, students um, or everybody's transitioning back to face to face. And so it is, yes, being fully aware of um, of uh, what what teacher and student needs are. But at the same time, there really is no good time
2: Mm -hmm. for
1: this to to, um, come up in conversation or in education, there, there will always be something that will, um, that, that, that would get in the way of making this conversation a priority. And, and I have to reflect back on, you know, my own family's lived experience. They didn't have a choice, right? My parents didn't have a choice. And their siblings, their parents did not have a choice and the emotional, spiritual, um, mental, physical pain that they experienced because of the residential school system
3: mm-hmm.
1: and, and all the other government policies that have been imposed and enforced on them. Um, you know, they didn't have a choice. And so it is our moral obligation as educators, particularly in this in this situation, but as as Canadians, as as humans, um, to make sure that we are doing right um, for our children.
2: We're going to have to end there. I, I want to thank uh, both Lisa and Tisa for joining me on the show to talk about their article, Reckoning with the Truths of Unmarked Graves of Indigenous Children. Education systems must take action. It's been a pleasure to have both Lisa Kordowig and Tisa. Uh, uh, Tisa Fiddler on the show to talk about this Lisa is an associate professor in the faculty of education at Lakehead University and uh, Tisa Fiddler is the indigenous community partner coordinator of indigenous education at Thunder Bay Catholic District School Board thank you ladies we really very much appreciate you taking the time to join us on the mm. show
1: miigwech. Okay, miigwech
2: Nyawagoa. okay ona bye bye and that is moment of truth for today I'm your host David Moses thanks for listening and we'll see you again tomorrow <laughs>